Hey listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to another podcast, Hacking History. I'm Mike. I'm Todd. And we're just a couple of old history teachers that love to talk history. Today we have one of our most favorite, brightest high school students, Philly, joining us to finish up our five-part series on the Gilded Age. So Todd, can you, if you will, give us a recap of uh, what the Gilded Age was and the time period and all that good stuff. Well, the Gilded Age, we're talking about post-Reconstruction, uh, coming in after the Civil War, uh, you know, close to almost 50 years, approaching the 1900s, early 1900s, 1898, if you want to say Spanish-American War. But it's a time of industrialization, growth, expansion. Uh, we see a lot of things happening we've talked about in the previous series. Uh, you know, this will start to trickle down and as we'll see the progressive movement start to move in as we see progressive changes after this. Okay, so uh, today Todd, uh, what are the three main topics that we're going to be looking at? Okay, so today we'll be talking about Native American policies, labor unions, and the cattle boom. But before we get into all the good stuff, um, I want to uh, introduce one of our students here today, our guest speaker, Philly. Um, he is actually one of my students in uh, the uh, in our dual credit U.S. history class. And Philly, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you're involved in, and just just let the listeners uh, get to know you a little bit. Well, first of all, thank you both for having me today. As you said, I'm one of your students, and I really enjoy history. Um, what I like to do the most is, as of right now, I'm a catechist for the Catholic Church, so I kind of have a little bit of experience kind of teaching and helping others learn. Okay, awesome, awesome. Uh, what are you involved in here at the high school, Philly? I do band and art. Um, I did theater for a little bit, and I think I might join that back again. Oh, very good, very good. Well, I tell you, I know that you are an, an outstanding student. You're one of my top top students if not my one of the top student that I have out of my classes um, and uh, we're just really excited that you're here today and helping us with this podcast um, so Todd I guess we'll just start with you if you don't mind Native American policies and then we'll let Philly uh, join in with uh, talking about the labor unions sure not a problem and it's Hard not to talk about Native American policies without getting into uh, some of the battles that occurred. You know, we're going to kind of stay at a high level on this because, you know, obviously with westward expansion, we're encroaching upon uh, the Native Americans and their existing lives and lifestyles in these areas. Uh, this expansion, you know, doesn't come without conflict and trouble. Uh, you know, to mention probably three of the more, you know, recognized or talked about uh you know, in encounters or confrontations. Uh, we'll start with the Sand Creek Massacre, 1864, uh, occurred in southeastern Colorado. This was against Cheyenne and Arapaho, uh, where 150 deaths occurred, mostly women and children. Uh, we get Custard's Last Stand, probably very popularized and well known. Uh, you got 1876, uh, Sue and Cheyenne. These are including some big names like Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, uh, another warrior known as Gaul. Uh, this was, um, you know, pretty much a win for the Native American population. Within an hour, they'd outflanked Custard and the 7th Cavalry, uh, and they were completely wiped out. 
another one was the wounded knee. Okay, so here we have the Seventh Cavalry again. This is December 28, 1890. Seventh uh, Cavalry is rounding up about 350 starving and freezing Sioux. Take them to wounded knee. Uh, the next day, they demand that they give up their weapons. A shot is fired. We don't really know the details. As far as who or what or how much, but uh, within the minutes, mostly 300 unarmed natives were killed. Uh, and that one in itself is probably bringing the end to the uh, Native American wars that occurred uh, in the westward expansion. But we also have some other things occurring as well. Um, you know, some of this is not just about battles, but we see the destruction of the buffalo, a uh, primary source for the native populations. We see Americanization, the effort to Americanize or even assimilate or bring them into our culture, make them more like us in this respect is what we think of assimilation and Americanization. Uh, at the time, there could have been you know, very honorable efforts in this regard, thinking that this was in their best interest. But we also see the death of cultures by doing this, the loss of identity of who they were, loss of language, loss of customs, uh, children placed in boarding schools, uh, not the happiest time in our history. Now, there were bad things occurring both directions, treaties being violated both ways, uh, very sorrowful stories. Quanah uh, Parker is a good example of both sides, his mother being kidnapped and being taken into the tribe and her family being wiped out, uh, and her trying to be acclimated back in and uh, not very successfully uh, when she was able to come back. So, You know, Todd, um, in our location, we're in the northern Texas panhandle, and we have a lot of, of, uh, of history with the Native Americans, especially with Quanah Parker and that last ba band of Comanche. Um, it was only, it's probably about 20, 25 miles south of our of Spearman, where uh, the Battle of Adobe Walls occurred. And then, of course, Quanta Parker was captured at Paladura Canyon, which is about 100 miles southwest of here or south of Amarillo, uh, about 20 miles or so. So we have a lot of that uh, Native American history pretty close to us. Yes, we do. And, and part of this, you know, dealt with Western expansion that was occurring during this time. We've got the Homestead Act there was 160 acres free to any citizen or head of household to try to entice people to move out. Um, now along the Native American policies, we have the Dawes Act of 1887, which is similar in the fact that it divided reservation land into 160 acres for each head of household and 80 acres for each unmarried adult. Uh, the, there's a little bit of crux to this because you talk about the movement of native populations onto reservation land, restricting them. They don't really see land ownership as a thing, uh, an effort to Americanize or further assimilate. You know, let's give them lots or acreages of 160 acres. Uh, but what does that also mean for us, you know, for the West, those expanding West? Well, here's what happens. You divide up a reservation in 160 acre tracts you're going to have leftover land. Guess what we can do with that? We can homestead that too for Western expansion. So the Dawes Act that may look like it's benefiting the native populations in turn actually is, uh, you know,
taking away a little bit more of the culture and taking away the land so it can be repurposed for others to use. Uh, interesting side note, I lived in Oklahoma, the first house I bought, uh, the abstract uh, going back to the turn of the 1900s was reflecting its allotment of 160 acres and, and owned by Native Americans. So you could see the history there even within the abstracts of Oklahoma. I know when I drive through Oklahoma, you're just leaving one reservation and going right into the, to the next one, it seems like. Yeah. It is a distinctively different place because so many native populations, different tribes were brought into Oklahoma. Uh, the, uh, there are areas that is tribal land, uh, there's tribal police, uh, you know, there's coordination with other you know, law enforcement agencies, but the rules and laws apply differently depending on where you're at. Uh, you know, it is a very interesting dynamic as uh, you know, the effect of the policies that occurred during this period. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Todd, I understand you have a fun fact for us today. Got a few fun facts. So, talking about custard, let's talk a little bit about his hair. How about that? Lock of hair. He was known for his golden locks of hair. Uh, a lock of it actually sold in 2018 for over $12,500. My goodness. Uh, as a guy that doesn't have much left on the top of his head, you'd think mine would be worth more than that, as rare as it is. But I'm surprised he had any after... Uh, after the, the Battle of Little Bighorn. Well, another thing he used, uh, apparently he used cinnamon oil in his hair. I wonder if that kind of helped them scope out where he was. Just follow <laughs> the smell of cinnamon and we can find the leader. You know, I'm kind of losing my hair in my old age. I may try a little cinnamon and see what magic it'll do. Think it'll, I'll have any luck? Uh, I know that ship has sailed for me, but more power <laughs> to you on that one. Philly, he's in pretty good shape in that department. <laughs> so... Uh, well, Philly, this, uh, we're going to pass the, the, the baton over to you for the race here. Uh, tell us a little bit about labor unions. Well, labor unions during the Gillard Age, um, workers worked around 10 hours per shift, six days a week for meager wages, and children as young as eight years old would work, and medical coverage did not exist. And even though they lacked money and education and political power, they knew one critical thing that together they could accomplish many, many things. So this is where union comes together. And they did not emerge overnight. There's, despite their legal rights to exist, bosses took extreme measures like intimidation and violence to prevent things from forming. Um, the first labor union was called the National Labor Union, which included about 200,000 workers. Their they fought for higher wages and shorter hours, and it brought together skilled and unskilled workers, as well as farmers. They did, however, stop African Americans from joining. Racist tendencies of the time prevail, despite the wisdom of bringing many workers as possible. Um, however, farmers had their own agenda, and skilled workers often had different realities than unskilled. And when the Panic of 1873 hit America, the labor union withered away. Another union I'm going to be focusing on is the Knights of Labor, and they supported the entire political agenda of the NLU. They advocated limits on immigration, restriction on child labor, and government ownership of railroads, telegraphs, and telephones. At the height of its membership in 1886, they boasted around 750,000 workers. Um, and on May 1st, 1886, the International Workers' Day, 
Local chapters of the night went on strike, demanding an eight-hour day for all laborers. At a rally in Haymarket Square on May 4th, someone threw a bomb into the crowd, and a police officer and several crowd members sustained injuries. No one really knew who was responsible, but the American press and government blamed it on the Knights of Labor. Due to this, the membership began to fall, and soon the Knights were merely a shadow of their former size. And now we can talk about the American Federation of Labor. It was founded by Sammy Gompers, and it was a union of, of many smaller unions, such as the Masons Union and the Hatmakers Hat Union. Every member of the AFL was therefore a skilled worker. Gompers had no visions of uniting the entire working class. He knew that the AFL would have more political and economic power if unskilled workers were excluded. He served as the president of the union every year except until his death in 1924. By 1900, the ranks of the AFL swelled over 500,000 tradespeople. Um, the AFL served as a permanent national labor organization until the Great Depression when unskilled workers finally came together. And due to all of these organizations, it has brought tremendous positive change to working Americans. Today, many workers enjoy higher wages and better hours and improved working conditions. Philly, out of all of the, the bad things that were going on during this time period, which one do you think maybe hits home closest to you? Which one do you think uh, really needed to be fixed the most, possibly? Child labor. Yeah, child labor is a big one. Uh, if you look at the bigger, you know, overarching things occurring, we've got, a, you know, government is very much laissez-faire, the name we keep repeating time and time again, stay out of it. We didn't have child labor laws. Uh, we didn't have 40-hour work week. No workers' comp. You get hurt, tough luck. If you can't do your job, you're fired. Yeah. Uh, you can't work. You can't feed your kids. You know, survival of the fittest. Social Darwin. Can you imagine getting the cold or the flu, and you have to stay home from work one day and or two or three days, and then when you finally get well, you go back to work, and they tell you we're not going to need you anymore because you've been replaced. So. Just awful. awful. And then, you know, child labor. The 10, 12, 14 hours a day for these kids, you know, children working. Uh, there's some great pictures from this period. You know, you want to see some hazardous working conditions with children working in it, working in coal mines, uh, working in weaving factories. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. And it's, you know, the things that we take for granted today that will come later within the progressive movement as a reaction to what was occurring and, and labor unions had a large part. They weren't supported by government. Uh, they weren't backed. In fact, the government didn't typically back the industry. It would take quite a while before them to really get a footing, but uh, they uh, have a lot to do with you know, our work environment today. Yeah, yeah. Well, Philly, thanks so much on all that good information on labor unions. Um, I'm going to jump into the cattle boom to finish up the podcast. But before I do, um, you know, we had the, 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 the part about the Native Americans and, of course, uh, their homeland was the Great Plains um, back in this uh, time period in the Gilded Age. And uh, they would have to be, finally, they would have to be removed from the area for westward expansion to continue um, after the Civil War. Um, they would really get serious about laying railroads down and 
and completing the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, and then there were several more Transcontinental Railroads that would be built um, after that the first one there when the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific would meet. Um, but this would kind of lay the groundwork for the cattle boom of the late 1800s and um, kind of go way back, we'll go all the way back to the 1500s when the Spaniards brought cattle to America for the first time. And for over 300 years, the numbers would multiply. The Spaniards would bring in different breeds of cattle. And, uh, and then, of course, by the 1820s, the first colonists would come down into Texas and they would bring with them their English breeds of cattle. And for the next 40 or 50 years, these breeds of cattle would mix and would form what we know as the Longhorn. And the Longhorn were perfect for our area of the world down here in Texas and on the Great Plains because they were a very hardy and tough breed of cattle that could survive harsh climates and they could really fight off the predators such as a, a wolf or a coyote or a mountain lion with those big long uh, horns and really sharp ends and some of them would have a horn span of six to seven feet longer even more than that so um, if you watched any of the great western movies um, you would know what exactly what I'm talking about but so jumping up to the Gilded Age after 1866 a lot of the old Texans that had gone off to fight in the Civil War came back home and these cattle had just multiplied and spread all over Texas um, and there was that was a way for them to make money a lot of these ex-confederates would come in and 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 uh, on their horses and and start to herd up these cattle and then in 1867 a great entrepreneur of the Gilded Age, a man named Joseph McCoy, built the first cattle pens at the railroad station in Abilene, Kansas. And the, that would kind of finish up uh, the infrastructure for what was needed to start pushing these cattle north. Uh, he offered prime rate because there was a great demand for beef in the northeast and, of course, uh, the country was growing, um, a lot of uh, people still coming in from Europe every single day, and uh, the Chicago meatpacking plant was really booming and doing well, and now these cowboys and ranchers could round up all these cattle and push them north all the way to Abilene, Kansas, from all the way from South Texas, which is, I, I know from tip to tip, north to south, in Texas, it's over 800 miles, so they probably had at least another four or 500 miles to go. Um, so it was a long, arduous uh, journey to get these cattle to rail um, in Abilene, Kansas. But they did it. As a matter of fact, in the years between 1850 and 1910, they drove over 27 million cattle north to uh, places like Abilene, Kansas, but they had also had built uh, rail lines with pens in, in Nebraska and Missouri and other towns, Dodge City, Kansas, places like this, wherever that railroad was, that they could load the cattle up and ship them back east. Um, and, and it was during this 10 or 20 year period that really romanticized 
the cowboy um, there's so many books and stories and movies out about the cowboy one of my favorites is lonesome dove um, and uh, have you all seen lonesome dove yeah. No. Billy, you have it? it? Mm-hmm. Man, you got to see it. Oh, I see a new assignment coming on for Billy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great um, cowboy movies out there for sure. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, like I said before, the, the young ex-Confederate cowboy or a lot of these cowboys were 14, 15, 16 years old, uh, just needed something to do and a way to make money. A lot of them came and and drove cattle. They were former slaves, a lot of European immigrants, and they would start to mimic the vaquero um, in using a lot of the uh, Spanish equipment in working cattle. So that's where you got the lasso and the broad brim hats, the saddle, the leggings, the spurs, and etc. And uh, we still use them today. I have a good friend that has a big ranch. Uh, in just south of our little town and a couple times a year he'll call me and I'll load my horses up in the trailer and throw a saddle on them and and we gather um, mama cows and their babies up out of the canyon and it is a very very fun time it's uh, usually takes us about two days to get it done and we are definitely tired our horses are tired by the end of the second day but um, it, it is it is a whole lot of fun. So I have a little bit of experience uh, when it comes to that. You know, we have names like Charlie Goodnight, um, and uh, he of course would have a big ranch up in the Texas Panhandle. But then the Goodnight Trail was a famous trail, and uh, you have famous people like Wyatt Earp and Jesse James um, that would uh, become prominent figures in a lot of these cattle towns. Um, and so forth. So this was a very fun um, topic for me to cover and I have read numerous books um, over the cattle kingdom of Texas and um, I really it's a part of my personal culture so I really did enjoy that a lot. But uh, anyway that kind of wraps our podcast up or we're running out of time and we sure do appreciate you tuning in um billy todd got anything else you want to throw out there no i'm good no. billy's good well we appreciate you guys listening to this this will wrap up the gilded age this is the last episode for this season uh please tune into our next season episode where we're going to tackle the progressive era we'll see you next time <laughs>